The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. The word of God speaks to us. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is God's word to us. Good morning, guys. Ooh, hot mic. Here we go. <laughs> Sounds hot up here. Maybe it's just normal out there. Who knows? Um, it's good to be with you guys today. You guys, are the, uh, you guys are the faithful remnant on holiday weekend, right? You get bonus points. Not only are you the faithful remnant, you're the, you're the overachievers who go to the 9 o'clock service. So kudos, kudos to you guys. Uh, I'm really glad to be with you guys today. Uh, it's, it's filled my heart even just worship this morning, coming into this morning. And so uh, I'm really excited to open God's word. If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians 13, this passage that was just read. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen as we move through the service. And then down here on uh, the floor level, if you're up in the balcony, on the floor level on the window seals, we have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, that would be our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to have one of those. My name is Chad Kinster. I serve as one of our pastors, uh, teaching pastor here downtown. And so uh, we've been... Working through this book of 1 Corinthians, we're here at um, a mountaintop passage in this book. And so I know we've prayed a lot this morning, and that never hurts, but if you would please pray with me one more time as we open this passage. Father, I pray that even as we open this text today, that this would not just be religious exercise. I'm asking that you would do something that outstretches my ability to preach, whatever that is. I'm asking that you would do something that would give us an encounter with your very presence. None of us need today to hear the words of m me, my words, but what we need today is to hear your very voice. So would you grant us understanding where we lack it? Would you grant us greater affection for Jesus where we don't have it? And would you renew our faith where it's dwindled? And I offer this prayer in Jesus' name and together we said, Amen. Well, as I mentioned, the passage in front of us today is a staggering passage to me. The passage that was just read moments ago is a staggering passage. And I don't mean that in sort of a pastor-speak kind of way where you might expect me to say something sentimental about any given passage of Scripture where it's sort of, you know, hyperbolically, this is my favorite passage of Scripture, you know. I don't mean it that way. I really mean that this passage as I've known it's coming for me that I was sort of drawn the straw to preach this passage, it's a staggering passage to me. And I'm not prepared today to say that there are certain parts of the Bible that are more important than other parts of the Bible. It's all important. Genesis to Revelation, every chapter, every verse is important. I'm not saying that there's some sections more important than others, but what I am saying is there are certain portions of Scripture that just hit different. They just hit different based on where it falls in the flow of the writing, where it falls in the context. It's building an argument to then drop the mic. Certain passages just level the punch. They just level the punch. 
I want you to think of today's passage in terms of a hike or a tour. Some of you are thinking, I hate hiking, right? Well, think about a walking tour if you like those, right? Think about it in terms of a hike or a tour. You wouldn't say that on a hike or a tour that any part of that experience is needless. It's all the little parts of that experience that make up the whole. It's what allows you to even think about it. And yet there are certain parts of a hike where you take a turn or you come upon a clearing and you look out at a mountain vista. Or if you're in the Wichita mountains, you look out at just desert dry grass. (laughs) You come upon a clearing and you look out at a beautiful view that causes your heart to skip a beat and rest at the same time. You're beholding a kind of beauty that that just staggers you. It just staggers you. That's what we're coming up to in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 as it unpacks the way of love for the people of God, for the church. A couple of years ago, uh, Pastor Phil and I went on a cycling trip with another friend of ours to, uh, to Utah and to Zion National Park. And the day before we went into Zion, we took a long ride uh, up what was the trails of Gooseberry Mesa. We, we had heard that to get to the top of Gooseberry Mesa was an amazing overlook. And so we thought, hey, listen, let's, let's bomb out on a 50-mile ride and let's take the 12-mile climb up the trail to get to Gooseberry Mesa. And so we did this. <laughs> the hills of Oklahoma did not prepare us for that 12-mile climb. It just didn't prepare us. We absolutely emptied the tank to get to the top, but I'll never forget the view when we made the final turn off the trail and we hit the top. There's a picture. 12 mile climb, hopping off my bike and doing hike a bike moments, different points through that 12 miles. But then I take the final turn and, and literally, it wasn't like I had to walk up to see this, like this is what I see. Breathtaking. There's actually another picture that I didn't want to throw up there, but it's a picture of our friend taking a picture of Phil, taking a picture of me with my legs hanging off the cliff, um, which is a great moment because I nearly died hanging my my legs off the cliff. Like Phil, my my right wrist gave way and I I fell over and Phil was like, you're going to (laughs) die. And then my friend took a picture of Phil taking a picture of that moment. But this, this is the view. Breathtaking. This is what we come up to when we come up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. See, what's happened is through 12 chapters, we've been journeying with the Apostle Paul as he's given this corrective word. Literally, the whole book of 1 Corinthians is a word of correction to this dysfunctional church. There's not a positive exhortation in the book. It's correction. And here in chapter 13, dead center of this larger conversation that we've been in, on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts to build up the church, Paul is guiding us to take a turn in the path, as it were. And he's gonna, what he's going to do is he's going to offer this breathtaking vista of love, this vision of love, the beating heart of true Christian spirituality. If we could have taken the narrative of the book, really since chapter 8, everything's been barreling down to this chapter the beating center of what the church was missing. And this vision of love isn't a detour, it's not a digression from the larger work on spiritual gifts. Instead, what Paul's doing here is he's giving this vision of love as the bedrock, 
as the guiding ethic, not only for the, all of the Christian life, but how we're to operate in the spiritual gifts. It's the primary way the gifts are to be practiced. So spiritual gifts aren't toys to be played with. The ministry of the Holy Spirit isn't a toy to play with, but it's a tool, it's an invitation to ministry. It's not something that we leverage to find greater spirituality. What gift do you have? Well, I have this gift, and so I'm a deeper Christian. No, it's not gifts to leverage superiority. Instead, the gifts are invitations to ministry and unity for the church. This is why it's about love. And so two weeks ago, you might remember Pastor Kevin, he took up the first half of this chapter where Paul shows the critical importance of love in verses one to three. And then he even goes on to give a definition of love in verses four to seven. So the love that he defines here isn't a sentimental kind of love. It's not a designer kind of love where it's after your own imagination and your own definition. He defines really clearly in four to six a moral and an ethical love that's to guide all Christians. And so as we finish the chapter today, what Paul's going to do, it's as though we get this invitation from him to sort of hang our toes off of the cliff of this vision of love. And he's going to show us what spiritual gifts have to do with eternity. Maybe to put it in the form of a question, he's going to say, how do love and spiritual gifts relate to one another, particularly as we think about heaven? What does all of this have to do with our future. So the first thing I want you to see today is this, love is forever, spiritual gifts are temporary. Love is forever, spiritual gifts are temporary. Notice the beginning of chapter 13 and verse eight, this breathtaking little sentence. Simply, love never ends. Now get your mind for a second out of Hallmark greeting cards. Whatever they're doing is hijacking the beauty here. Love never ends. Maybe more literally translated from the Greek, it would say, love never falls to the ground. Love never collapses. Love never gives way. Love never ends. To just be honest with you, like I rewrote this first point of the sermon six different times over the week. I literally hit select all, delete, because I wanted to write an entire sermon just over this phrase, love never ends. There is, there is a lifetime of worship if we were to understand what Paul is capturing for us here. This is the scaffolding of our entire faith. Creation is about love. It's the overflow of everything that God is. It's not as though he was bored. It's that he, was, he is in a community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From the overflow of that love, he creates. Creation is about love. Redemptive history is about love. Jesus is about love. Him dealing with our sin is about love. The resurrection is about love. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is about love. The upbuilding of the church with the gospel message is about love. The promise of Christ's return is about love. The consummation of the kingdom of God where he comes to deal with every injustice, set it to right and establish his reign forever is about love. Love never ends. And so Paul places this little sentence here as the capstone at the end of a list of the superlatives of love or what the reformer John Calvin calls the excellencies of love. Back up in verse seven, 
to give a running start, it says this. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He caps it off. Love never ends. And so the question becomes when you read this list, so wait a second, are we talking about human, moral, and ethical love, or are we talking about divine love? I thought this was about an ethical love for Christians to operate in, but this seems to be about the superlatives of love that only God can match. Are we talking about human love, or are we talking about divine love? And that's the exact question that Paul would want us to ask, to which he would respond, yes. Are we talking about human love? Are we talking about divine love? Paul would want us to say, yes. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to pull us into the center of the character of God that we might be marked more by him and have a love for one another that has impressions of his character on us. And so what Paul is doing by giving this high view of love embedded in this discussion on spiritual gifts is really important. This word was given to them, as beautiful as 1 Corinthians 13 is, as many people have had this at their weddings or put this in a greeting card, this is actually a word of correction to the church. A positive vision of love is a correction for the church because the Corinthians, they prided themselves on their spiritual gifts. They were really proud of the manifestations of the spirits in their mix. They were really proud of their spiritual experiences, but they were really proud of a lot of spiritual things to the neglect of loving each other. They would even brag and boast about a deeper experience of one as opposed to another. And so what Paul is doing with this chapter is he's actually establishing a plumb line of true Christian spirituality, a basis by which we can measure what is, what is true Christian spirituality from some, some fake, phony, false poser vision of that. What, what, what is true Christian spirituality? And what true Christian spirituality is, the test of that is not what gifts do you have, It's not what experiences do you claim to have had. Instead, the test of true Christian spirituality is love. It's love. And notice the reason he says this. Look back at verse 8. The finish says, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, well, they're actually going to cease. And as for knowledge, the gift of knowledge, revelatory gift, he says that'll actually pass away. And so he gives us what feels like this contrast of love and spiritual gifts and the contrast of the one lasting forever, love, and the other passing away, the spiritual gifts. It's not a contrast that's meant for us to have to choose one or the other, as if to say, well, let's relegate the gifts to a place of unimportance. They're going to pass away, so they must not be important. Let's just be a loving people. And we know he doesn't mean the contrast this way because this entire section of Scripture, chapter 12 through chapter 14, is given for us to understand how do we operate in the spiritual gifts and the working of the Spirit. And then he opens chapter 14 just a few verses later by putting the two together. He says, pursue love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Not a contrast, one or the other. Just recognize that love is the fuel that makes the spiritual gifts operate in the church. He's not putting them up as mutually exclusive options. He's saying gifts 
without love is nothing. Who cares what spiritual experiences you have? Who cares what gifts you claim to have if you're sort of a jerk? (laughs) Gifts without love, back up in verse two, he actually says could even be harmful. Could even be harmful. And so with love as the beating center of how the church operates in the gifts, we've gotta spend the rest of our time figuring out what does he mean in verse eight? In verse eight, he talks about gifts passing away, tongues, prophecy, knowledge. He says that these are actually passing away. They're gonna cease. These gifts that are often so desired, revelatory gifts, supernatural gifts as some call them, he says one day they're gonna cease. And the question has to become, well, what does Paul mean by that? And have they already ceased? Since the writing of this until it reaches us, have these gifts already ceased? And if they haven't ceased, when will they cease? Paul says they're gonna cease. And the answer to these questions, as you might imagine, has been the source of debate for lots of Christians and denominations. People have literally divided over the issue of what Paul is talking about here. And sadly, What's intended, Paul tells us in chapter 12, what's intended by the spiritual gifts, the workings of the spirit, what's intended by all that is for the unity of the church, but it's actually served for many to divide the church. Like if there's anything in the church, the larger C church, if there's anything in the church that would suggest the whole, the whole thing that parents say to their kids, this is why we can't have nice things, it's spiritual gifts. And yet what's happening, yes, we've divided but God hasn't removed them. He actually keeps giving us his word to shape us. And so I realize that by you coming in on a Memorial Day weekend, like the burning question in your mind for few, if any of you is like, man, I just really gotta know today, is tongues still a thing? Like I I know, like is prophecy still like on the table for us? Like I know that's not the burning question for many of you, but, but here's what I do know. Many of you grew up in denominations like me. Many of you grew up in denominations, if you have a church background, where the topic of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts was either avoided altogether or if it was talked about, it was strongly opposed. It was put down, we're not gonna be those crazies out there, right? It was either avoided or it was strongly opposed. Again, that's certainly true from my background. And so hang with me as we get into the rest of this passage, because here's here's what's really important. How we answer the question of what Paul means in verse 8 is not only important for how we interact with the gifts or how we interact with someone who claims to have these gifts, but it's also important for us to understand, hey, what's the point anyway? What's the point of these gifts in the first place? This is actually a really important debate. And so the epicenter of where people divide on this is in verses 9 and 10. We'll look at them, but whatever you hear from me in the next little bit, I want you to at least hear this. The point I'm trying to drive at is that spiritual gifts lead us to the giver. Spiritual gifts lead us to the giver, namely God. So pick up with me in verse 9. He says, For we know in part, and therefore we prophesy in part, but... When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay, so do some work with me. There's lots of ink that has been spilled over these verses, but verse 9 is clear enough. Verse 9 is clear enough. I don't think there's anybody here who's claiming to know everything, right? And so Paul begins simply by saying, we know in part. 
We don't know everything. Real plain, we know in part. That's how the verse begins. And so then the second half of the verse is that therefore, we know in part, and so we prophesy in part. And we're going to talk more about prophecy and tongues in the next couple of weeks when we get into chapter 14 that downloads those things. But a brief definition of prophecy, just for our help today to understand this verse, would be this. Prophecy is when you share something with another person that you believe God is bringing to mind, God is impressing upon you, that God is revealing to you about them or on their behalf that's in alignment with Scripture. It might be a word of Scripture. It might not be a word of Scripture, but something about their life. But ultimately, it's an application of Scripture. It's something that God brings to mind on behalf of another person. And so plain enough by what this passage says, we're only able to prophesy or offer to someone what we think is a word from God. We're only able to do that in part. Why? Because we know in part. We can only prophesy in part because we only know in part. We don't know everything. Again, verse 9 is plain enough. But verse 10 is where all the debate comes. And it comes down to this little phrase, when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. And the question is, what is the perfect that he's talking about? What is the perfect? And whenever it comes, we know that the gifts are going to pass away, especially these revelatory gifts. So what is it, and when does it come? And there are two views on this. And so let me just kind of nerd out with you for a second and give you these two views. One view is called cessationism. And cessationism is a view that means that the gifts have ceased for the church, that they're done. And we'll talk about when they think that they were done in just a second. But they believe that the gifts are done, and they're irrelevant for the church today. Cessationism. The second view is a view called continuationism, which means that the gifts still continue today and they're highly relevant for the church. One view sees the gifts have ceased and they're irrelevant. The other view sees the gifts continue and they're highly relevant. Now, full disclosure and not surprising, if you've been with us over the last few weeks as we've looked through these passages, as a church, we hold unashamedly the continuationist view. We hold the continuationist view. And we hold that view not only because of how we understand this passage, but we hold the continuationist view because of how we understand the entire New Testament and how it speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Maybe to put it this way, when you just simply have a reading of Scripture, no commentary, just a reading of Scripture. I'm not saying commentaries aren't helpful. I'm just saying what's plain from how you read it in context. At no point of our reading of the New Testament do we get the impression that God has stopped encountering his people in power today like he did back in Scripture? We don't get the impression he stopped doing that. If anything, our reading of Scripture causes us to believe that he's the same today as he was then and we're encouraged, even commanded, to call out to him and trust him for the same. We're commanded to do that. And so briefly, just to capture the cessationist view it looks at this passage, and it understands the perfect, the, the reference in question. It understands the perfect as talking about the closing of the New Testament scriptures. So when the perfect comes, they understand that to be the closing of the New Testament scriptures. They would say, when the last New Testament scripture was composed, most probably the book of Revelation, when the 
when the last New Testament scripture was composed, it was at that time that the perfect had arrived. And that at that point, we no longer needed the supernatural signs or gifts of the Holy Spirit as the apostles needed in their moment to authenticate their preaching and their teaching about the gospel message. That at the moment when the New Testament closed, they would say that the supernatural was done and now we have the perfect because scripture is in our hands. And there's others who would hold this view that would hold that view of scripture, but they would also say the gifts ceased when the last apostle died. That the gifts were primarily for the apostolic moment. Now there are faithful Christians, maybe some of you in this room, who hold this view. Like you can absolutely be a Christian and hold this view. It means nothing about your salvation in Jesus. There are Christians that I love and respect deeply that hold this view. But just lovingly, clearly I don't hold this view. And lovingly I would just want to say, I think this view is insufficient and unhelpful for several reasons. Just look at the past with me. There's nothing about this particular passage that gives you the sense that the eager expectation, the hope that the Apostle Paul had for the church at Corinth and for all Christians, that the thing he really wanted you to know about as he's talking about love and the spiritual gifts is, hang on, guys, Scripture's coming. There's nothing that gives you that impression. Now, don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. I love the Bible. I'm a preacher for crying out loud. I love the Bible. And I don't believe the Bible's open. I don't believe we're adding anything to Scripture. We're not changing anything from Scripture. Scripture is closed. We've been given once for all Scripture, it's the final authority to guide Christians in all things of faith and practice. But I don't think that any Christian has ever felt that just because they have a Bible in their hands, that we're now able to understand and know everything clearly about our life and about God, and that we no longer have need for God to show up in powerful ways just because we have a Bible. If anything, If anything, it's our belief in Scripture that bears witness to the power of God's presence and causes all true Christians to keep crying out to God to show up all the more. It's our belief in Scripture that makes us believe this. And what's most clear from this passage is that the perfect, the term of debate, the perfect, what's most clear is that it's referring to the return of Jesus. When the perfect comes, even the Greek word used here, and I don't throw this out very often because it makes me sound crazy, but the Greek word used here is teleon, which means telos, the end for all things, where all things are headed. I don't think that Paul had in view the end for which all things are headed is scripture. No, the end for which all things are headed is the kingdom of God at the return of Jesus. And at his return, all things will be perfected. No more sin, no more death. The partial at that point, the imperfect, even our spiritual gifts, at that point, they pass away. And at the return of Jesus, spiritual gifts will be no more. Why? Because they won't be necessary. You won't need any pastors anymore. Thanks be to God. (laughs) You have a better one, Jesus. At the point when Jesus returns, we won't need any more encouragement in our faith. Why? Because our faith will be sight. At the return of Jesus, we won't need to be equipped anymore for mission and ministry. Why? Because it'll be mission accomplished. And so understanding the perfect as the return of Jesus not only squares with the rest of what Paul is saying in this passage, but it squares with the rest of how Paul writes in the rest of the New Testament. Maybe to put it just kind of curbside for a second. 
the thing that is keeping Paul up at night, the thing that's really kind of bothering the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the church, isn't when are we going to get these scriptures written? Like, that's not the thing that's keeping Paul up at night. And it's also not what's the church going to do after the last apostle dies? That's not the thing keeping Paul up. The thing that has Paul on the edge of his seat and the thing that he longs for every Christian to eagerly hope for is the return of Jesus. That's what he keeps coming back to over and over again. That is the perfect. And so when you see the perfect as the return of Jesus, it fits with the rest of what's said in verses 11 and 12. Look at those with me. Paul says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What Paul is illustrating here is this moment of, of maturing at the arrival of the perfect. That it's as though we're walking through faith as disciples almost in a childlike way. We're longing for final maturity when we can kind of put down our inconsistencies and our stumbling. I don't think that any Christian would say that because they have a Bible in their hands, they feel completely mature in their faith. <laughs> you have a Bible in your hand, and I'm like, why am I so immature in my faith, right? And I no longer need spirit-empowered help because I have a Bible in my hands. It's actually just the opposite. With a Bible in hand, isn't it true that our, our faith is like we're stumbling disciples that need help to walk faithfully like a child needs help from a parent learning to walk? And so the help that we need toward the day of final maturity, the help that we need is the Holy Spirit and the gifts he gives the church. Look again at verse 12. He says, for now, now right here as we are, we see in a mirror dimly. It's the partial. We don't know everything. We see in a mirror dimly. But then when the perfect comes, then we see face to face. Paul gives personal testimony here. He says, now I know in part, but then when the perfect comes, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Again, I don't know any Christian who would say that they know God face to face. <laughs> I know Christians who would say, I want to know God that way, but I don't know any Christian who would say they know God that way in the same way that he fully knows us simply because I've read scripture. I don't know any Christian who would say that. And Paul even speaks personally in this verse. He says, hey guys, only I know in part. Only I know in part. But I'm looking forward to the day when it's more than that. And I'm not sure that any of us are prepared in this room to say that we know God better than the Apostle Paul. But, but the scriptures do tell us that there's a perfect day. There's a perfect day coming when we will know God face to face. The return of Jesus where we will know him fully even as he knows us fully here and now. And so there's a bit of the debate, but, but here's the crazy thing, guys. It's kind of round the corner today. The crazy thing is there's so much more. <laughs> there's so much more that I want to say about these verses. And, and here's what blows my mind. These verses have turned into a bit of debate for the church, but Paul didn't even have this debate in mind when he wrote this. He was simply writing to the church to help him understand, engage the gifts, because there's coming a day when you won't need them anymore, and the purpose of the gifts is to get you to the great day, the perfect. Far from this passage suggesting that the gifts have ceased, the clear suggestion is that that day is coming, but it's not here yet. The gifts are still active. And this is why Paul opens chapter 14, the, literally the next verse after chapter 13, by saying, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. 
and he felt no need there to put an expiration date on that desire. Desire them until the perfect comes. And so the end of the matter of this passage is this. Let me give you three summation statements and then just talk to you moment as a pastor will be done. The end of the matter, the bottom line is this. Love, love is the beating center of how Christians should live together and learn to walk by the Spirit. Love. It's the beating center. We shouldn't be a group of people who are after one-upmanship or being deeper than the person sitting next to us. We should be a group of people who are trying to spur one another on to greater love and to greater faith and to do whatever we can to leverage for the good of the other. The passage ends with that famous Kirkland's wall hanging or that famous Hobby Lobby wall hanging. Faith, hope, and love. The passage ends that way. It says these are the cornerstones of the Christian faith, but the greatest of these is love. And here's why that means, what that means. Faith, faith will pass away one day. Why? Because it will turn to sight. Hope will pass away one day. Why? Because it will one day be fulfilled. But love, love never ends. The second thing, what's so beautiful from this passage, what's so beautiful from this passage that's often missed because of the debate is that there, guys, there is coming a sure day. And I say this because my soul aches for this day, and I know that there's some of you who feel this ache acutely today. There's coming a sure day when we will see God face to face. I hate that that is so often missed in this passage because that is the hope of the Christian life. Whatever the gifts are, he's the real gift. He's the real prize. The gifts give way to the giver. And for the Christian, the day of meeting God face to face will not be a day of dread. It will be a day of delight because of all that Christ has done in our place for our sins. The third thing, spiritual gifts. What's the purpose of them? Spiritual gifts, the workings of the Spirit, are God's gift to you, are God's gift to me, they're God's gift to us as a church, here and now, as an act of love. Why? To make it to the great day. The fact that he would still encounter the church with his presence and his help and his spirit is an act of love saying, I haven't abandoned you, I won't lose you, I will get you home, and I'm putting proof of that in giving you the Holy Spirit and his gifts to the church. It's an act of love. And so here's my close just talking to you as a pastor. The problem for the church at Corinth, the problem for the church at Corinth is that they love spiritual gifts, they love their spiritual experiences to the neglect of loving each other. That's why Paul's writing. Now it's important for us to know that because we have to understand the scriptures, but I don't think that that's our problem today. Like I think we gotta know what the scripture says, but I don't think that's our problem but that doesn't mean we don't have a problem. Where they love spiritual gifts to the neglect of loving each other, here's what I think our problem is. We neglect loving each other because we often don't desire the Holy Spirit or the gifts that he wants to give us for building one another up. I think that's our problem. And I think one of the reasons why so many of us want to neglect this stuff, why even so many traditions and denominations want to avoid this topic, is because we don't want things to get weird. We just, can we just not get weird? Can we just be like normal Christians, whatever that is, right? <laughs> Listen, 
Desiring the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us isn't gonna all of a sudden lead to people doing pull-ups off of the gold railing in the, in the sanctuary. Like, like, if that's what you have in mind, that's not gonna happen. Scripture actually, in chapter 14, is gonna give us a lot of order as to how we gotta practice the gifts. The weirdest, if we go after this, guys, the weirdest that things are gonna get is that we would have an increase of obedience to Jesus that we would have an increase of godly character, that we would have an increase of burning love for Jesus. Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit bears witness of me. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit. More love for Jesus. If we go after this, the weirdest is this gonna get is that we have a burden, in a mission, burden for the mission of Jesus in our city. The weirdest that this could get is that we have a burden for the great day to come where Christ comes back and the gifts are no longer needed. If that's the weirdest this is gonna get, then count me in for the weird. Count me in for it. Hey, listen, we're already weird, guys. We're so weird. We believe in a crucified Middle Eastern man who has risen from the dead and is the hope not only for our lives now, but for all eternity. That's weird. And yet we believe that. The Holy Spirit and desiring the third person of the Trinity to engage us, God himself, would only more squarely mark us as the people of Jesus. And that ain't so bad. That ain't so bad. And so here's what I want so badly for us. Here's what I want so badly for us. I'd love for us to be a people who don't just have intellectual faith, but that we're a people who live in the center of this beautiful city, the greatest city in America. Right? I'm so glad to be an American, but I praise God I was born in Oklahoma. I mean that. I love it. I love this place. What I want so bad is to be a people in the center of this beautiful city that are willing to say, I don't just believe in Jesus. I want to risk what I have for his kingdom's sake. Because I really do believe he's the hope of the world. And if that sounds like it's far from wherever you are today, I actually don't think it is. I think that being a person who's willing to just kind of put your life out there for Jesus is as simple as this. I wonder if you would be willing to risk tomorrow morning, maybe even just try it out today as like a test run. I wonder if you'd be willing just to say, and prayer. Jesus, whatever you want from my life, the answer is yes. I just want to put my yes on the table even before I know what you want to say. And, Holy Spirit, would you help me listen for your voice today and follow? If we just start there, that's a monumental step up from where most of us are. Jesus, Whatever you want from my life, my answer is yes. And Holy Spirit, would you please help me to hear your voice today and follow. And follow. Guys, here's the, I don't want to get to heaven and just have missed out on so much of an encounter with God in my 80 years on this planet if God gives it to me. If I don't get one more day down here, I want to get all of God that I can possibly get and have a seamless transition as possible from this life into the real life everlasting. Let's pray together.
Father, I'd like to end today by just sort of offering myself with my friends in the room that prayer. Jesus, whatever you want from us, the answer is yes. And Holy Spirit, would you help us to listen to your voice? Thank you that you're not mute. Thank you that you're not silent. And thank you that you're not stingy. Holy Spirit, would you help us listen to your voice and follow? Amen.